When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today I am doing something that I have, well, I sort of did it before, but I'm going to try, and that is to give you a sneak peek, dear listener, of my new book, post-traumatic Jesus, reading the story of Jesus with the wounded. Uh, It's a book I've been working on for a long time, and I've finished pretty much the manuscript. i got a lot of more work to do on it. I want to thank everyone who's read my books before. Um, Reading is kind of hard sometimes for a lot of people, and I hope this podcast is a way to engage with some ideas uh, without having to pull out a book, but I hope you buy the book when it comes out in like two years. Um, watch the space. I'll, I'll let you know about it. Don't worry. Uh, but until then, I want to give you just a little, and maybe also give you some of the book, but also hope that you can give me some feedback on it if you like it or aren't sure what I'm trying to say or something like that. I would hope you would let me know about that because I want to make this book accessible to as many people as possible. The post-traumatic Jesus is the only Jesus Christianity has ever known. From Thomas, who wants to touch Jesus' wounds, in Greek, trauma means wounds, In the Moravians, to the Moravians who describe their church services as being in the wound, the wounded, traumatized Jesus has brought healing and hope to traumatized people. This is not to say that other ways of seeing Jesus are illegitimate. Indeed, in recent years, we've witnessed a variety of perspectives on Jesus, including black, womanist, and feminist perspectives to counter the white and male-centric versions of Jesus that have been presented over time, often by men of great privilege. Ever since I came back from the Iraq War, I've read scripture through a post-traumatic lens. This reading has not only helped me process my own traumatic experiences, but also is probably closer to how the original readers read scripture. The brutal Roman military occupation of Jesus' homeland, the first Jewish war, of 66 AD and the unrelenting violence of a world lit only by fire were ever present in the minds of Jesus' hearers and the early Christians who followed him, many to their own traumatic deaths. This book examines the stories in the Gospels through the lens of trauma, paying careful attention to how the authors use these stories to create hope and healing for traumatized people. The post-traumatic Jesus has brought healing and hope to traumatize people through the millennia. And it is this Jesus who extends his wounded hands to us. Until now, reading scripture through the lens of trauma has been an academic discipline. In 2016, the Society of Biblical Literature published Bible Through the Lens of Trauma, a collection of essays exploring the way, this way of reading scripture. In a 2012 conference, Trauma and Traumatization, Biblical Studies and Beyond was held at Aarhus University, Denmark, and it contributed significantly to the field. I hope this book bridges the gap between the scholarship and the reader that needs to know they are not alone in their post-traumatic world. Furthermore, I hope this book will help 
you see your traumatic experience as having spiritual significance, a point often overlooked in trauma therapy. Healing from trauma also includes learning how to trust again. And the post-traumatic Jesus is constantly teaching about trust, a synonym for faith. The COVID-19 pandemic and the civil unrest after the killings of black people in America has revealed to the general public how trauma can be distributed across communities. Complex PTSD, hostage PTSD is a collective experience and white America has it in massive quantities after 400 years of slavery, Jim Crow and the new Jim Crow. Stories of moral injury and healthcare workers and the subsequent suicides are starting to emerge. Moral injury is a component of trauma for caregivers, the feeling that I should have done more, or if only I had done X instead of Y, this person would be alive, can be overwhelming. One only needs to listen in on a nurse telling a family member not to come to the hospital as their loved one dies, to feel the weight of moral injury. Jesus was a healer, and all his healings address not only the physical symptoms, but the spiritual and emotional system, symptoms too. His lonely but public death also stands in solitary solidarity with the victims of COVID-19 who say goodbye on FaceTime as a nurse holds the iPad with a trembling hand. Today, religion has never been perceived as less relevant in people's day-to-day lives. Mainline churches lament the crowded Sunday schools of yesteryear and wonder what gimmick can they can pull to lure in the young families. Meanwhile, Americans seem okay, seem to be okay as they sip coffee and read the New York Times or schlep the kids to a soccer game on a Sunday morning. For many, the only time they have an intense thought about religion is when they see a far-right evangelical praising Trump or his successors or saying God sent COVID-19 because of abortion and the gays. But even as we lose our religion, Jesus is still strangely present in memes, art, and pop songs, especially in the wake of trauma. A controversial painting of Jesus by the father of a murderer who was executed by the state is discussed in the Houston press. A picture of the giant Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil with all the flags of the world projected on it goes viral as the Western Hemisphere shelters from a pandemic and Is it me, Jesus? Is a beloved meme on TikTok. In 2018, the University of Texas's Blanton Museum builds a $23 million cruciform chapel, cross-shaped, complete with the stations of the cross. An agnostic running buddy of mine spends $600 to take his family to see Jesus Christ Superstar. Clearly, even in the first secular age the world has ever seen, Jesus isn't going anywhere. Perhaps as collective trust and science erodes, as institutions fail, and as the values of modern conveniences and technology are questioned, we might say we are living in a new medieval age. Both the left and the right are responding to this shift in consciousness by drawing from medieval symbols and practices that reinforce their agenda. As more and more young people turn goth for God, the medieval imagery of the crucifixion finds a new relevance. For too long, preaching and writing about the crucifixion has been avoided in progressive Christian circles, mainly for fear that it highlights the penal substitutionary atonement 
that is akin to child abuse of God the Father upon God the Son. This book presents the trauma of Jesus in a way that Christians can reclaim this territory from the fundamentalists who have shamed too many into praying the sinner's prayer. Even if Jesus is still present in the secular consciousness, why is there a need for a new book about him? The goal of this book is to connect the secular and religious Jesus with contemporary traumatic experiences so the reader can connect their own story to Jesus' story. This is no easy task as the Jesus of history has been gilded and gelded with both religious and secular themes that move traumatized people further from Jesus, from the Jesus who was nailed to a cross by Roman soldiers and left to die for six hours on a Friday afternoon. This book is not a substitute for trauma therapy or medical care, so frequent encouragement for the reader to seek out other sources of help is included. Since it is often traumatic events that turn people away from participating in religious communities, I don't assume that you, the reader, worships Jesus as God. Like the Gospels themselves, Jesus will be presented here as a first century itinerant Jewish teacher who did not speak to Christians, but people who experience recurring traumatic events, the Roman occupation, and the often merciless ancient world. Skull Hill. We can see Skull Hill now, a macabre place if there ever was one. Golgotha, the Aramaic word for skull. In Greek, it is cranion, cranium, in our modern anatomy class. With the Romans, we call it calvary, for it is like the dome of bone on a human head. The Jolly Roger pirate flag, the Punisher sticker on the pickup truck window, Dan Aykroyd's personal vodka brand, all skulls. The Totenkopf, literally dead's head, is the last thing that Jews crowded in the gas chamber see on the collar of an SS guard as he peers through the dirty glass. You will find skulls on countless military unit insignias the world over, as well as on bottles of poisonous liquids and countless other spaces. Shakespeare's Hamlet holds up a skull and says, Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, and the despair and sadness of death is visible. Skulls remind us of our impending death as we look into the hollow eye sockets. They look into us. And so Skull Hill is a fitting place for a Roman crucifixion. A plaque written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin is nailed to the top of the middle cross. It proclaims Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and beneath that multilingual placard hangs a crucified man. His body is nailed to the wooden beams of the Roman torture device. His eyelids are swollen nearly shut from being beaten about the head. There is a crust of dried blood in his skin, and new blood oozes with each fainting heartbeat. He is alive, thus in excruciating pain, crucifixion being at the root of this word for unbearable pain. Beneath this cross, the soldiers who did the actual work of crucifixion are rolling bone dice for his cloak. They are drinking cheap wine, soldier wine, to take the edge off. They have gotten drunk in many lands and far-flung territories of their empire. With every sip, every buzz, every loud war story, they numb all feeling and sympathy for what they do. They take another drink, 
in hopes this drunk will touch the sadness down below the cruelty. They jokingly offer him some. How could they not have heard of his first miracle, that it was turning water to fine wine at a wedding? Others insult the crucified man, taunting him with his powerlessness over what has happened to him. Some spit, others stare. Some women are there, his mother and some others. From the nails of the cross, the crucified man speaks through his pain. Mother, behold your son. Be, son, behold your mother. He is asking his friend to watch over her, she who bore him into the world and gave him his first bath. She says nothing. What could she say in the trauma of the moment? Her silence is our silence in the face of horror. She is, he is powerless. She is powerless. It is hard to tell who is in the most pain. His dehydrated mouth croaks words and the crowd cannot understand him. Eventually they hear, I thirst, and they run to get a sponge. The sponge, a carcass of a dead sea creature who is rooted to one place for life, only to be plucked up by divers and used to clean, today to be dipped in the soldier wine and mixed with a bitter substance that may numb his pain for a bit. The act of mercy is a double-edged sword, as the crucified man never knows if it will relieve pain or, pro or prolong his pain. There is a loud cry, and he dies. Six hours is short for the torture of the cross. It seems too short, too good to be true, for the bureaucrats who want all the bodies down from the cross before the approaching festival. They cannot take down live bodies, for then they would not have died by crucifixion. Their sentence of death by torture must be carried out in all its details. The morality of torture is rigid, exacting, precise, and completely devoid of human love. A spear is rammed into his side by a soldier to confirm his death, the fluids that gush forth from his body cavity confirm his clinical death in their death-filled minds. This post-traumatic Jesus is the only Jesus Christianity has ever known. From Thomas, who wants to touch Jesus' wounds, in Greek, trauma means wounds, to the Moravians who described their church service as being in the wound, the wounded traumatized Jesus has brought healing and hope to traumatized people. While other more sanitized versions of Jesus have been presented over time, often by people of great privilege, it is the post-traumatic Jesus who has endured. This is the only Jesus who truly looks like us. The trauma of Jesus, often called his passion, these gruesome six traumatic hours on a Friday afternoon on Skull Hill are reenacted, rehearsed, recited, and remembered by over a billion people living each year. A mother writes a note to her son's principal, excusing him from class so he, walks the, so he can walk the stations of the cross with his youth group. A grandfather kneels in an empty church, thumbing a rosary with a crucifix at its center. A construction worker cuts four-by-fours in his garage with a circular saw to put on, the, put on the lawn of his Baptist church. Add to these billion all those who have meditated on this story in the two millennia before us, refugees, soldiers, kings, peasants. The symbol of a crucified man is placed above the cradles of babies on coffins, hot cross buns, affliction t-shirts, and tattooed on human skin. It is this symbol that the burning Joan of Arc begs to be placed before her 
as she dies in the fire. It is this symbol, the first depiction of Jesus we have, that some joker carved on the wall of a Roman house around 200 AD. The picture is a crucified jackass with a man, Alex Memenos, a Christian looking up at it. The words, Alex Memenos worships his God, bears witness to the young man's absurd faith. It is this symbol that an ICU nurse prays before in the hospital chapel while she tells me she has always planned her own suicide, that she will not have to die with a tube jammed down her throat. Why is this symbol so meaningful to so many across the last 2,000 years of human history? The cross speaks to our human condition better than most other symbols. A helpless victim, an unjust trial, a gleeful cruelty, and a silent God. These are not only what happened at the crucifixion, they are the hallmarks of traumatic experiences that most humans have experienced in our short lives. While the teachings of Jesus about not worrying and being kind and the actions of Jesus like turning water into wine are wholesome and exemplary, these stories of his life and teachings recorded in the four Gospels have always been read through a post-traumatic lens of his crucifixion. One of Christianity's earliest theologians, St. Paul, preached very little about Jesus' parables and life events. He had one central message, we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. While the message was offensive and foolish to many who heard it, it drew a dedicated band of followers from enslaved people and the lowest classes of society, all of whom would have had significant trauma from living on the bottom rungs of the Roman world. As Mary Beard writes in her monumental SPQR, the Roman world was terrifyingly vicious and alien to us. That means not just the slavery, the filth, there was hardly anything as refuge collection in ancient Rome, the human slaughter in the arena and the death from illnesses whose cure we now take for granted, but also the newborn babies thrown away on rubbish heaps, the child brides and the flamboyant eunuch priests. It was into this world that the stories of Jesus first circulated, offering a completely different alternative. Many years ago, my four-year-old son came home from preschool upset. When I asked him about it, he said, the friends laughed at me. They pushed me. They put me on the cross. He spread his arms wide. I didn't know what to say. What could I say? He understood the symbol in a way that would take me many years to understand even after serving in the army during the Iraq war in Baghdad, coming home to a shattered marriage and acting out my untreated PTSD on everyone around me. I couldn't do what my son did to see my trauma somehow being connected to Jesus's traumatic life. But as my certainty in God disappeared in the fog of trauma, my connection to the cross became stronger. Now I read the gospels through my own post-traumatic lens and so many of the stories now make sense to me. The post-traumatic Jesus has drawn me to himself. Perhaps he will draw you too. Annunciation. They make a desolation and call it peace, says barbarian king Calgacus before a battle with the Romans in present-day Scotland. Calgacus goes on, robbers of the world, Having by their universal plunder exhausted the land, they rifle the deep mines. 
If the enemy be rich, they are rapacious. If he be poor, they lust for dominion. Neither the east nor the west has been able to satisfy them. Alone among men, they covet with equal eagerness poverty and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. Calgacus loses the battle with the Romans, but his word, words echo down through history, summarizing the raw feelings of people who were consumed by Rome's voracious appetite for new land and more tribute money to increase the personal wealth of Rome's old families. Jesus is born in a Roman province, just another little life consumed by Rome's gluttonous appetite. Around 60 years before Jesus' birth, while Julius Caesar marched his troops to the foggy forests of Britain, the fate of Roman Judea is decided. After a series of battles between the Seleucid king Mithridates VI and Roman commander Pompey, Rome wins. Shortly after this Roman victory, a dispute between rival Jewish priest kings Aristobulus and John Hyrcanus brings Pompey and his legions to Jerusalem. It is here in 63 BC that Pompey becomes one of the few men in history to step foot into the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. The temple rises above the bustling city, a giant prayer built of white stone. In it are the hopes, dreams, and fear of Judea and her children who, by the time of Jesus, are found all around the earth. Its continual smoke of sacrifice ascends, and the sizzling steaks and briskets from a thousand oxen causing mouths to water all over the city. Stomach growls ascend to heaven like the ecstatic prayers of mystics. A priesthood bound by blood rules the temple, even after Rome marched in. Like Pompey in the Holy of Holies, Rome comes in, looks around, then tells the priest to reconsecrate it and restart the prayers. Rome has no interest in Jewish religion. They have no interest in Jews. They have no interest in anything but the cash flow to their mighty capital from whence they are named. The Romans are not as interested in conquering the world as they are in taxing the world. Many nations simply surrender without a fight. They know the brutality with which the Romans wage war. Every soldier of Rome is a killer, a disciplined fighting machine. They stay in formation, throw their javelins. The javelins have thin steel necks, so if they miss, they will bend out of shape upon impact with the ground, unusable to the enemy. If they hit an enemy shield, they will drop, droop and bend, making the shield unwieldy and soon thrown to the ground. Then Rome closes with the enemy. The Spanish sword is short, thick, and sharp. Each legionnaire trains with it every day, and the wounds it leaves are gashes and meat cleaver chops. The damage they inflict on human bodies brings to mind the machete-hacked bodies in mass graves in the Warandan genocide. The survivors of Rome's wars were then sold into slavery. During major campaigns, the huge numbers of enslaved people would flood the market, driving down prices. Some went to the mines, some to the fields, and some to the beds of their masters. To be a slave is to lose all bodily autonomy. Slaves had no rights in ancient Rome and could be tortured, beaten, raped, and crucified. There was no escape or rebellion. 
Spartacus tried this and failed spectacularly and heroically. He died in the final battle, and soon 6,000 of his followers were crucified along the Appian Way, their vulture-picked bodies bearing witness that Rome's war machine always wins. No one can stop Rome's war machine, not even God. Many had called on their gods and goddesses when Rome was at the gates, and not one of them could do a thing. When Yahweh destroyed Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, God's people sang, Yahweh is a mighty warrior. But where was Yahweh when Roman army boots with their nail, with their sharp nail tread stamped into the Holy of Holies? Where was God when everything collapses? Where was God on my one worst day? The question hangs like a gloomy cloud over human history with its battlefield, smoking ruins, refugees delivering babies on the side of the road and trying to walk on. The question comes to us in the evil hours when we stare at our losses in the face. Where was God that day, we ask, and all we hear is silence. Silence, God's first language, mocks us as we struggle to make sense of the traumatic events that turn our world upside down. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is the first line of Psalm 22, a psalm many in Jesus' day prayed in their mother tongue Aramaic as they woke up to the harsh reality of Roman occupation. To answer this question that echoes down through time and human misery comes the answer to this question that echoes down through time and human misery comes to us at a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Galilee, a region of northern Palestine distinguished by its hills and the fierce warlike people who live there. Josephus, who we will meet later, says the Galileans are fierce fighters. Two of Jesus' disciples are called the Sons of Thunder, and Peter, a Galilean, is the only one to attack with a sword in the New Testament. Nazareth is in Galilee is an obscure place on the world stage. It is far from Rome and far from Rome. As Nathaniel says in John's Gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Six kilometers from Nazareth lies the city of Sepphoris. While there is very little discussion in ancient sources of Nazareth, Sepphoris is a place of historical significance, which usually means there were battles and killings there. Several times the Romans and Herod had to subdue revolts there, and the city became a center of Roman government and influence in the early days of Jesus. Six kilometers takes about an hour and a half or so to walk. And so a silent God answered the question of the ages, where was God? In Nazareth, just a small town, an hour from Rome. In the town of Nazareth lived a woman named Mary, who was engaged to a man named Joseph. This is how Luke, our only narrator of these events, introduces them to us. How did they meet? What were their childhoods like? What kind of relationship did they have? We do not know. All we know is their names and where they fit into the story that is spare on personal details, the kind of details about human relationships we long for. We do know one thing about Mary, and that is the most intimate detail of her womanly life. She is a virgin. Even in our sex-positive age, the concept of virginity persists. If we have crossed that line ourselves, 
we know it is both a blurry line and a sharp one. Just like our first parents in the Garden of Eden, once we experience that knowledge, it is a knowledge we keep forever. It is no coincidence that the Hebrew word for sex, yada, is the word to know. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. And so Mary is unknown by Joseph. She is a stranger, a virgin that is both so close, yet so far away. There is a tale told by an early enemy of Christianity, Kelis, that Mary had a sexual relationship with a Roman soldier named Panther, Latin Pantera, who fathered Jesus. While Panther was a common name for Roman soldiers in his time, this is clearly a second century urban legend. However, that Greek and Romans could imagine such a thing helps us understand the world Jesus lived in. Could Mary say no to a Roman soldier who wanted to have sex with her? Not safely. Rape has always been an unofficial strategy in war. When the Roman god of war Mars is summoned, his consort Venus, the goddess of love, follows close behind. Passions are stirred in violent men, and whatever gentleness and compassion that lives in them is shoved aside to give way to the sexual violence of war. It is in this world that the angel Gabriel announces to Mary she will conceive in her womb and bear a son named Jesus. Mary, who is nearly helpless before the rapacious men of Rome, is asked by God to consent. Here am I, the slave girl of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. I translate doula in Greek as slave girl because that is what it meant in the context of the day. Too many translators have softened the impact of this word in the New Testament by translating it servant or even handmaid. Even handmaid sounds gross in light of the Margaret Atwood book and show nowadays. The word grates against our senses, disturbs, provokes, and this is what she says to the angel and hence to God. She says, yes. In situations of trauma, especially sexual trauma, the inability to refuse and the inability cons to consent are the deepest part of the wound. Judith Herman, in her Trauma and Recovery, tells how an emergency room doctor shares the sensitive, shares the sensitive information. Every care must be taken in hopes the victim is not re-raped, he says. So when I do an examination, I spend a lot of time preparing the victim. Every step along the way, I try to give back control to the victim. I might say, we would like to do this, and how we do it is your decision, and provide a large amount of information, much of which I'm sure is never processed, but it still comes across as concern on our part. I try to make the victim an active participant to the fullest extent possible. The world was brutal before Rome, but Rome industrialized brutality, monetizing the rapacious and greedy to make more and more. For all those in Jesus' day who were helpless in the face of their violations, the story of the Annunciation, the announcement, is a story where the God of power and might, the Lord of hosts, armies, waits patiently for the answer of a young woman in an obscure town called Nazareth. Like the, like the ER doctor, God offers a relationship of participation to Mary and to us as well. This is where the story of Jesus starts. 
in a request for consent and a kind of mutuality between God and humanity that is entirely new in the mythologies of our world. This encounter between a God and a human woman that focuses on human reproduction is not new in the stories of the world. Apollo prays on virgins in their prayers, Cassandra being the most famous. She refuses to sleep with him, and so he blesses her with the gift of prophecy, but with the catch that no one will believe her. The rest of her life she is tortured by visions of her city and family burning, and she is seen as a madwoman, hysterical, and thus ignored as all women are when they warn the world of its deserved doom. In Genesis, the primal account of our origin, we see in chapter 6 that certain angels, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of humans saw that the daughters of humans to be beautiful and so took them as wives. The word for take is the Hebrew word lachak and is better translated seize. In the prophet Samuel's speech about the dangers of getting a king, he warns the people that the king will lachak their cattle and donkeys, young men and women for himself. And so these women were seized and possessed by these wicked angels. The children born to them were giants, Nephilim, and full of violence. These giants traumatized the people of the earth until Noah's flood wiped them out, their disembodied souls roaming for a place to inhabit and terrorize. What we see in the story of the Annunciation is the reversal of how gods relate to humans. We see a reversal of abuse and rape, the reversal of how women and the vulnerable have been seized, used, and disposed of. We see a God who is trying to not, as the ER doctor said, re-rape us. And God is is initiating this new relationship with Mary and all humanity in the midst of Rome's desolation that they call peace. The silence of God is broken. Here is the first word that answers the question, where were you on my worst day? Chapter 3, A Traumatic Birth. The original Christmas story starts out unromantically with a tax. Emperor Augustus calls for it in the story, and various bureaucrats like Governor Quirinius of Syria, the regional governor of Jesus' family, carries it out. The order of a Roman emperor was to be obeyed by even the most obscure people of the empire, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. Rome does not have kings. They killed them long ago to form a republic that lasted until the general Julius Caesar declared himself to be the sole dictator of the empire. From that day on, just a few decades before the birth of Jesus, Rome had emperors, imperators, a word meaning conqueror. Emperors must always conquer more territory, thus increasing the tax revenue for the elite residents of Rome. The taxes also fed and equipped Rome's massive army and navy, thus becoming a self-perpetuating cycle of consumption. In Luke's Gospel, we meet Caesar Augustus, the current emperor. We, of course, do not meet the man, only his name. Caesar is a title adopted by Julius Caesar's successor, Octavian. By taking this title, Octavian took the power and prestige of Julius, thus showing his subjects that he could do to them 
what Julius did to them if they rebel or defy his authority. The power of this name, this title, echoes down through history as it is adapted into different places who want to conquer like Rome. The Kaisers of Prussia, the Tsars of Russia, even the Ottoman sultans of Turkey adopted the title when they finally overtook the Roman city of Constantinople. Today, I bicycle down Cesar Chavez Boulevard in Austin, Texas, and eat a Caesar salad. We all know people named Caesar, a common name around the world. How would the name Caesar Augustus sound to Mary and Joseph as they heard the command repeated through their town after its long journey from Rome? Would it have chilled their spines or caused eyes to roll? We do not know. We know so little about people from this time, or really any time in the past. All we have is what we know, and that is very little. Their inner lives are like the ocean, mysterious and dark, with shifting currents and tides. We also know very little about ourselves in the aftermath of trauma. We have sensations and feelings, but are often unsure what to make of them. Some chill our spines, others bore us. Others bore us. But we press on in trying to feel what Mary and Joseph feel, because we are sure they are feeling characters like us. They have sorrow, joy, grief, and delight. While we live in a world where we buy our chicken, skinless, boneless, and wrapped in cellophane, theirs was far more bloody and earthy. The world was also quieter, so much quieter. The planes, trains, and automobiles, not to mention air conditioners, heaters, podcasts, the barking of dogs, the squeal of children, the rooster's crow, are the loud noises of life. How much more did they hear than we do in our cacophony? The argument of this book depends on the hope that we are more similar to Mary and Joseph than we are different. This book assumes that the human beings in the first century A.D., experienced traumatic events similarly to the way we do. Jonathan Shea's books, Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America, have shown that combat trauma in Homer's day, a thousand years before Jesus is born, is eerily similar to combat trauma in veterans today. Their songs of grief and loss resonate today, as do the Psalms and other emotionally laden laments of the ancient world. And so we imagine this young couple through our post-traumatic lens. They are subject to a distant power who demands they travel for a census so they can be taxed. This distant power has local agents, a complex system of bureaucrats and muscle, papyrus and steel. If they do not go, they lose everything, maybe even their lives. One of the emerging areas of trauma research concerns complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD. Simply put, this is what people get from being a hostage. Simply put, this is what people get from being a hostage. The inability to exercise bodily autonomy with the threat of death hanging over your head does something to the body, soul, and mind. Even Freud found that the threat of annihilation caused signs of a demonic force at work from his pleasure principle, page 35. Mary and Joseph, as well as the rest of the Israelites of their days, were hostages to Rome. They had very little bodily autonomy, and they lived under the threat of death. There are, of course, more extreme examples of being a hostage, 
But this is their situation. Silently, daily, hourly, the slow drip of trauma release poison into their souls. When this happens, when human beings are subjected to this kind of slow drip, traumatic threat, the demonic thrives. We will see in later stories how many demons inhabited the land, plunging people and animals into fires and off cliffs. Self-destruction is the only freedom of the hostage, and the demons whisper, do it, do it before the Roman boot falls. Surely Mary and Joseph knew relatives who tried to trick Rome or perhaps defy them outright. We know from Josephus that the whole land was a powder keg of insurrection and tension, and this lives in the body. Besser van der Kolk's landmark book, The Body Keeps a Score, has entered the common lexicon of how we understand trauma, and so we see the Messiah being miraculously conceived in a body that was keeping score. The miracle of the Incarnation is staggering in its grandeur, and over the centuries, Christians have meditated on the mystery of Mary's body. Even in the Reformation, a reverence for the Immaculate Conception of Mary was maintained by many. The Immaculate Conception of Mary does not refer to Jesus' conception, but to Mary's. She must have been conceived without sin to be holy enough to give birth to God. Even if we reject the Immaculate Conception and the sinlessness of Mary, for whatever theological reason, we still honor her for her role in the drama of the world's redemption. And if we honor her in any way, we must see her as both holy and traumatized, the one who bears in her body the child who will end death itself also carries in her body the trauma of being human. She is truly one of us, and the child she will bear will be one of us too. When Mary swaddles the newborn Jesus, she is wrapping him in the inherited trauma of her people and the inherited trauma of being human. We wrap babies tightly because we want them to feel safe again after leaving the safety of the womb. We want them to feel like they are being embraced, hugged, and nurtured. We don't want them to be afraid of the terrors that we face. We want them to feel, if only for a moment, what it feels like to be okay. This is what Mary did for Jesus. This is what our mothers have done for us. And this is what we can do for each other. If any of this has resonated with you or you have some feedback about it or something I said disturbed you or bothered you, please let me know runnermonk at gmail.com or 512-571-4124. Text me or call me and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks for taking this journey with me.